Uh, we're in the book of James, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be going through the idea of faith and works. Uh, this is one passage, but we're breaking it up kind of at the halfway point, because at the in the second half of the passage, we then start to talk about James and how he talks about Abraham and Rahab, and we want to contrast that with Paul and show the way Paul talks about it, and really get at the idea that they're talking about the same thing, uh, but in different ways. They're talking about saving faith and what it does. And so uh, we broke the sermon at the halfway point of the passage, and we're going to do the first half this week and the second half next week because of that. Uh, But let me go ahead and get us started. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Pray with me. Father, as we hear this passage, we need to understand it. We need to listen. We need to obey and we need to uh, enter into what these verses are saying, and I would ask God that you would give me an incredible amount of clarity, uh, that those who are listening would, by your Spirit, understand what the Scriptures say, and that you, Lord, would use this time to transform us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, have you ever seen a movie, and this is like the movie like The Day After Tomorrow, if you've ever seen Day After Tomorrow, well, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, who knows, where there's like, but there seems like there's movies where there's this crack, it can be in the ice, like Day After Tomorrow, but like there's this crack in the ice, and then like peril begins, and the crack gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and generally in movies like this, there's like one character on one side, and there's one character on another side, and the and the division's getting wider and wider and wider, not like this one, this one's just the beginning, those people are in a lot of trouble though down there in the back, um, where it gets wider and wider, and then somebody's like, you gotta jump, and they jump, and they don't really, you don't think they make it, but they do make it, but the camera has to kind of pan over the side, and you see that they're grabbing on with like one hand, and they're right there, and they're almost gonna die, but they don't, right? It's perilous. It's terrifying uh, when they have these little films, these little these shots. One character on one side, one character on the other, and what are you going to do? Well, these types of moments, uh, though not as cinematically glorious, you know, we don't have the same kind of budget as Hollywood, happen in the church all the time, where there's these little fissures, there's these little moments where something might crack. Then... Over time, that crack grows, and as we don't pay attention to it, and we just go, oh, that's no big deal. I'll just kind of live my life. What starts to happen is we realize that divide grows deeper or wider, and before we know it, we're actually on different sides of an issue. This can happen if we don't give attention to what we believe 
if we don't stay in fellowship with one another and talk about the scriptures, if we don't work out areas of doubt or confusion or worry, if we don't actually try and understand what the scriptures are saying, this is why I love our D groups, our discipleship groups, because it's nothing magical, but it gets men or women together week after week talking about the scriptures, reading it, journaling on it, processing it, praying over it. And so we have these environments where we can talk about what we see in the scriptures and what God is doing there. Our community groups, even if they're just meeting right now via Zoom and they have just group chats, these allow for us to talk about what we're hearing. Uh, Many times, many of our groups are going through the sermon text. And so they get to talk about what they're hearing and work it out more. Uh, And these are little things that we have in place to help us to walk through the scriptures together so that we don't realize that this crack is formed and then one, two, three, four, five, six, ten years later, we're on far different sides of the same issue. Well, faith and works is certainly going to be one of those issues. and So we're going to give it two weeks to give it some time because that's an important thing to understand, how faith and works operate together. Now, our series in Galatians before Easter showed us That salvation is by grace. It's the work of Jesus for us. That's it. There isn't a works aspect that you then add to your faith so that you gain salvation. That's what the Judaizers were saying there in Galatia. They said, oh, no, 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 you need to also have works. You need to follow the law. If If you believe in Jesus and follow the law, then you're good. Well, that's a Jesus plus something equals salvation, isn't it? So we already have kind of established that that's not the right way to understand how our salvation works. But then we have the book of James, and people have hard times with the book of James because of the fact that it feels like it seems different. Can such faith save him? Someone's justified by their works and not by faith alone? Like, why why use these words and why put these things in the Bible side by side? Well, just for one, I want to say this to those of you who might be new to the Scriptures. uh, This is actually a great thing. Because uh, we've said this before, God has nothing to hide. So he's not like, people aren't trying to just like jam the Bible full of just ideas that aren't hard to wrestle with and don't require us to think and, and, and reason and pray and seek clarity. Like it's not just like this monotonous thing, right? That God, even, even when we read things in the scriptures that might seem different, provides for us an opportunity to see what is consistent, what's the thread that goes through it all. And so we'll be seeing that today. The salvation is always by grace and through faith, but at the same time, there's an aspect of our sure salvation that then results in works that come through faith. So depending on where you go, right, as the ice cracks, right, you might land on one side or the other, or you may not even know it, you might operate on one side or the other. So we're going to go through these few verses this morning together, but I want to start with this understanding faith again. And we've talked about this multiple times. There's elements to faith that I think this is going to help us think about this entire process, right? Three elements. The first element's information. The second element's understanding. And the third element is trust. Now, I've said these before. We've talked about these before. So, so let's just think really quickly about what this means. Somebody also used like knowledge, assent, or commitment. If we don't recognize that faith uses these three elements, biblical faith uses these three elements all in one, and we're going to think that we have some version of faith that might just start at information, might just stop at understanding, but doesn't result in 
trust. In the same way, if you have a faith that just goes, oh, I just trust God, but you have no idea on who God is or what he's done, you just kind of use this as blind faith. I just have blind faith. I've always just had blind faith. Well, faith isn't blind. Faith has never been blind. Faith is a person. Faith is Jesus. So to think that we just have blind faith just kind of runs to trust without information or understanding. To think that we're okay because we know some stuff doesn't actually move to trust. These three elements have to work together. So information is content that comes to you in a language that you can understand. Right? So if somebody says the if somebody says to me information, understanding, and trust in a language I don't understand, I'm not getting any information. There's no, there's no ability for me to actually recognize what's being said. So information is kind of that content. Understanding means that I can actually grapple with and grasp what this means. So, for example, understanding, well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? What does it mean that Jesus died for me? What does it mean that he rose? What does it mean that I am sinful and I am in need of salvation? These are elements that we have to understand. We don't have to understand them in the fullest sense. We don't need to be uh, some kind of historic, strong theologian to understand. In fact, that creedal language that we've talked about, uh, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That type of language is helpful for us to understand the content of our faith. But it ends with this idea of trust. And again, trust is that release. It's that release of, now I've heard these things, and I'm going to actually trust the Lord for my salvation. I've used the illustration before where uh, our old neighborhood had a hard left turn out of it. It's difficult sometimes to see what was coming. And so whenever we'd make a left turn out of the neighborhood, I would go, okay, you know, and Courtney would be sitting there in the passenger seat, and I'd go, is there any cars coming? I'd be looking this way, right? I'd say, are there any cars coming on your side? And she'd go, no. And I'd go, great. Now, what do I do? I look. I still look. Why? Because I heard what she said, and I understood what she said, but I did not actually trust what she said. Now, this is not because she's untrusting. It's because I'm driving. And when I'm driving, I can't just go, oh, well, you know, my kid in the back said it was fine. They can help me make an informed decision. They can help me to see what is going on. She can help me to go, no, don't see any cars. I don't see any cars either. That, but, but if I actually then look as well, then what happens? What am I lacking? I'm lacking trust. So when Jesus says, for example, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus says something like that, we can go, oh, that's great. But to actually trust it means that we go to Jesus and we seek from him life and restoration. To put faith in Jesus means that we recognize our sinfulness and we go, I can't control my life, Lord. It's you and only you. So these three elements, information, understanding, and trust, work together for us to build saving faith. We'll actually see that as we get to the end of this passage this morning. But what we're going to start with, as we, so I want you to have that in your head as we get into the passage, is that we'll see how this actually works itself out in the life of a Christian. That if you've actually trusted the Lord, 
then, then it changes us fundamentally. If we stop at just understanding, oh, yeah, I know those things. And have you ever had somebody go, man, I don't know what it was. I have heard the gospel message my whole life. I have heard that Jesus died for me. I have heard this. I've known this. I could repeat it. But for whatever reason, now I believe it. Again, we're showing those little moments where something we understand actually moves to a point of trust. So in verse 14, in many ways, James does this. In verse 14, he's going to say this. Faith without works isn't faith. And this is going to be important for us to recognize, right? He says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now, this is going to be a little public service announcement for us. This is your second one of the morning. James is not talking about adding works to our salvation. Our salvation is the Lord. It is faith in him and his person, his work, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and he died and he rose for us, for our sins, in our place. That is what we believe. So Galatians demolished the argument about our salvation needing some type of work in order to be for real. And this is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. It's also James who will be, depending on when you date it, he's the James of the Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council says it is clear in Acts chapter 15 that, that you can't add work to your faith to find salvation. That, that, that doesn't work. So James is aware of this. James knows this. James believes this. But what he's actually doing is saying, what good is it if someone claims to have faith? Can such faith save him? James is essentially showing us throughout this entire passage, this week and next, he is showing us saving faith and not saving faith. We call it faith and works because that's what we hear, but James is actually talking about faith that saves and faith that doesn't save. Can such faith, a faith that does not result in, end in, demonstrate itself in works, can that type of faith actually save. And what we'll see is it's a faith that stops short of trusting in the Lord. Now we get a little nervous because we then go, oh man, works. Well, I better have works. I need to have them. And that's not the way we need to think about it. Well, if I want to be saved, I got to have works. That's not the right way to think about it. But what James is about to do, as he always does in our letters, he's going to actually illustrate what he means by this. So he's going to give us one illustration. And what we're going to see is that works could be small, but they could also be mighty, that they have that kind of power. So works might be small, but they're also mighty. We'll see that in verses 15, 16, and 17. And this is important for us because I think sometimes we're going to look at works and we're going to think, oh man, i got to do tons of really awesome baller things for Jesus if he's going to like me. It's not true. It's not true. This is, actually, this is actually what we're going to see is we see just a, a, a demonstration of faith in the provision of needs for a brother or a sister. If a brother or a sister is without clothes, and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Now, this is the classic I'll pray for you situation. That's all this is. Oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. I'll pray for you. They don't have daily, they lack clothes and daily food. And one of you says, go in peace, go on your way, be warm and well-fed. 
but you don't give them what the body needs. In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Again, true faith and false faith. Now, this is not the only illustration that we might have, but it's one that makes a lot of sense to us even today, is the classic, I'll pray for you, is the kind of show of, oh, I have, you know, I have faith because I'll pray for you. But what James is saying is, if you have faith, that faith is going to move towards some type of demonstration of this faith for the sake of others. If you understand it, why? Because what has Jesus done for us? Jesus came to us in our spiritual poverty. Jesus came to us in our great need. Jesus came to us when we had nothing. He didn't go, be warm and well-fed. See you later. He provided for us. And so faith that works itself out is a faith that understands and believes in who Jesus is. So this is the classic I'll pray for you situation. And there's an assumption about the not the brother or sister who's without clothes and daily food. There's an assumption that the other person has the ability to help meet those needs. Now, you know if you're with us for James chapter 1, James expects people who read the scriptures and hear the scriptures to do what it says. So I need to ask you, just with this in mind, what need can you meet right now for someone? What need can you meet right now for someone? And I don't mean this. Okay, now hear me. This is what sometimes happens. Someone will call the church, or they'll email us, or they'll call an elder, and they'll go, hey, so-and-so has a need. And it sounds really harsh. We're like, can you meet that need? Right? Can you, can you do that? Can you provide for them? Can you care for them? Can you give them what they need? Right? Because if you see it, right, if God has put an opportunity before you where someone, and we'll just use the faith family, if someone in the faith family has a need and you see it, you do not punt by saying to somebody else, hey, have you seen this? Maybe could you do something about it? The expectation is for the person who sees it to meet it. So if one of you sees someone without clothes and lacks daily food, one of you says to them, there's no comment on this person being an elder or a deacon or a community group leader or anything like that. This is just people operating in the family of faith. So here are a couple of just examples of how this might work. If you have the bedrooms to put people up when they need a place for their family, then you give them your bedrooms. If you have a lawnmower or a chair or a bed or whatever that you have that someone else can use, or maybe even someone else can have, then you give them what they need. If you have the finances to supply someone's need for lunch or for dinner or for breakfast, then you provide it. And let them know that you're doing it because Jesus has provided for you. If you have a relational connection with someone, and it might be able to help somebody find a job, it might be able to help somebody get encouragement or counsel or care that you yourself might not be able to offer, but you do know the person and they don't, then you offer it. You help to meet the needs of people in your faith family. I want everybody at Genesis, every person to pray for every person. I want you to start with those who are around you. Who's in your family? Who's in your community group? Who do you serve with? Start, start in those circles and begin praying and asking what people might need. But also, we live in a time right now of heightened 
need. It's really just realized need. We don't have more needs than usual. We're just realizing that we are completely dependent upon not ourselves. But it exposes this time that we have needs. We have physical needs. We have financial needs. We have relational needs. We have spiritual needs. What need can you meet? What help can you give? What investment can you make in someone else so that they might be provided for? This is way more important than just going to somebody and saying, oh yeah, I'll pray for that. I want you to pray for it, but I also want you to meet the need. James doesn't have a category for the believer who has the ability to care for somebody. And we'll just go back to in the church family and does zero about it. Zero about it. Often, though, we feel like we have to do something significant, newsworthy, something that we can tweet out, something that we can push to social media, get written up about or get praised for, and that's not what faith does. That's actually what the flesh does. The flesh wants to be seen, known, highlighted, glorified, liked, subscribed, all of those things. That's what the flesh wants, but faith actually works itself out in the provision for others. If you have what somebody needs and you withhold it, we're not living out of faith that Jesus would want us to be living out. Faith meets the need because the need is real. It doesn't seek credit. It doesn't seek the spotlight. It doesn't seek anything like that. So we have true faith, false faith. We have works that are small but mighty. And then what we see again is a highlighting of this idea. There's really no room for two types of faith. And he's going to end this in verses 18 and 19. We come to the end of this passage. James is going to say, you really can't do both. But this is what starts to happen, is that people will start to do in the classic kind of Christian, we're friends, we don't want to make anybody mad, we don't want to be uh, upsetting or anything like that. So somebody, and James does this, and good writing will do this, good speaking will do this, good preaching will do this, is where they'll anticipate how somebody might disagree and will respond to that. This is what happens right here in verses 18 and 19. Someone will say, well, it's great that you have faith, but I have, and, you know, and I have works, right? So you have faith, I have works. Someone's going to say that. This person over here, they, they just have the faith without works, and somebody over here has the faith with works, and, that, and that's fine. Can't you have both? And what's James going to say? Hey, show me your faith without works. And it's funny because a faith without works is only words. That's all it is. It's just, oh, yeah, I believe. I mean, I believe that. Why do you believe that? Because I said I believe it. I mean, wh what do you believe? I, I believe these things. I was in school or Sunday school, and they taught me that, and I believe it. Great. How does it change you? It, I mean, I have faith. That's it. I have faith. I, I just believe it. So faith without works is just a faith that's only words. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works, by what I do. And he's going to say this. As we end, you believe that God is one. Oh, good. Good. Uh-oh. Even the demons believe that. So to the person who's going, well, I can see it both ways. James is saying there isn't both ways. And he's actually going to just highlight or contrast a faith that's only words is really a faith that is I'm going to say it it's kind of it's just the same faith as demons 
he uses Deuteronomy 6.4, which is a pretty common and well-known passage for a good Bible-reading Jewish person. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe, you, the person who would just have faith but no works, you believe God is one. <clears throat> well, good. You, you've, you've held on to that. Even demons believe that. What's he saying when he says even the demons believe that? Well, let me ask you this question. Are demons redeemed? Will they be restored? No. So their knowledge of the Lord, remember those words, information, understanding, and trust. Remember how we kind of think about that? Demons likely have better theology than you do. Demons were professing who Jesus was while Jesus was here on this earth. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. They were well aware of Jesus' person, his work, his nature, his character, his power. They saw it. But they didn't trust him. And believe upon him. They don't see a need for the restoration of the world. They don't even want that. You believe God's one, good. Even demons believe, and they shudder. Information, understanding, and trust. If you stop at any one of these, and your faith doesn't hold on to all of them, especially in these first two, then your faith is <clears throat> similar to that of demons. For the demon might be a better theologian. Information, understanding, and trust. So a question that I want to ask you this morning as we think about it is just this, as we just finish the first part. Does your faith work? Does your faith work? Now, now that's a... You go, yeah, it's a, it sounds yes or no, but this means a couple of things. Let me kind of tease out a little bit of what, the, what I mean by does your faith work. I really mean it in two ways. Does your faith work, meaning does the content of that, does your content of that faith actually equal what Jesus has done for you? Do you have faith in the gospel message? Bless you. We can hear the sneezes anyway, so just recognize it. Do you recognize that God created this world and everything in it? That God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you recognize that you've sinned against a holy God and are in need of forgiveness? Do you recognize that Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father? fully God, fully man, born of the Holy Spirit, that he has come into this world. He came into this world to die for your sins. Do you recognize that the same Jesus rose from the dead and will come again to judge the living and the dead? Now, I don't mean you have to be Wayne Grudem and all of these things. You don't have to go, oh, yeah, well, I know how this works, I know how that works. No, 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 no. I just mean, does it work in that, does the content actually form the parts of the engine that make up faith? 
that make up what we believe in, that it gives us what we need for our life and our salvation? That's an important question because a lot of people might go, oh, well, I, I have faith because I go to church or I have faith because my mom was a Christian or I have faith because my grandma was a Christian or I have faith because my dad was a Christian or I have faith because uh, during this time at camp somebody said this and I thought it was a good thing to say. I have all of these things. I want to challenge you to go, have I actually ever considered my faith in such a way that it has resulted in me trusting my life, my heart, all of me, to Jesus. Does your faith work? Does it actually make sense? In the same way, if you're doing a math problem, my kids have had to do lots of math problems as of late, right? 5 plus 4 equals 12? No. You look at that, you go, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Those words don't make sense. 5 plus 4 doesn't equal 12. equals 9. So does your faith work in that? Does Do the parts of faith that are needed for salvation, are they there? Have you trusted in it? Now, now the second question is then, does your faith work? Meaning, does it demonstrate itself in love and good works towards your fellow brother, towards your fellow sister? Towards, does it demonstrate itself in a changed heart? Do you live it out? If so, how? How has the Lord been powerful through you? How has the Lord changed you, challenged you, grown you? How have you seen transformation come? Does your faith work and that is it complete for your salvation? And does your faith work and that has it demonstrated itself in acts of faith? Remember at the end of Galatians, Paul says the only thing that matters is faith working, working itself through love. So again, James and Paul are going to line up. We'll spend a little more time on that next week. But it's important as we think about our salvation and that ice cracks and we're going, what do I do here? that we land on the side of salvation by grace through faith. And that that faith shows itself in work. You're going to ask me, or we might, might ask, well, how do I know? Are my works enough? Whatever it might be. You know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not there to tell you. I mean, we've said it like this before. And I've probably even said this, right? We'll go, oh, well, I'm a fruit inspector. I don't know if you're saved or not, but I'm there to inspect your fruit. I'm like, well, I don't know. if Some of those fruits can be really deceptive. And so I don't even, I'm not even a fruit inspector. I'm going to leave all of that to the Lord. The question is, does our faith work itself out? So in part one, what we're looking at is how do we get into the idea of faith and works in such a way that we recognize there's more to biblical faith than perhaps we thought. In part two, what James is about to do is bring us into illustrations of two people from the Old Testament, from two different walks of life, two totally different experiences, two totally different um, histories and people, and how they saw what God had revealed, they responded to it in faith, and that resulted in work. So next week we'll see that, and we'll deal with the idea of how then does this idea of justification work itself out. 